Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. We're going to be done with the book of Colossians this morning, and uh, we'll examine it carefully. Colossians 4, verse 7. If you've turned with me, then read now. To Caicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me, writes Paul. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, sending him to you for this purpose that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions that if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God, For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those who are in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. So we have come now to the end of the letter. Uh, Feels like quite a journey, for me anyway, I don't know how it feels for you. Uh, We started examining this a year ago, it really felt longer than that to me. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, uh, but it did. About a year ago in December of uh, uh, 2018, uh, we began uh, in the book of Colossians. And these closing verses of the letter, which we have read this morning, are not usually taken all that seriously in study. And we understand why. The main course of the letter, which when we think of a letter, we think of instruction and counsel and the do's and the don'ts, that part is over. And we are just kind of tying a bow on what remains. And we don't know these people very well. These are names to us. Some names we recognize. uh, Some a little tough for us to pronounce. uh, Not ones that we are familiar with. So why why bother with a lot of study? Uh, The the answer to that question is, is pretty obvious though, right? This is the Word of God. Is it not? It is. If it is God's Word, then we should study it, I think. Uh, so it shouldn't be a bother to us to spend uh, some closing time here in uh, Colossians chapter 4. God is saying something here, and it takes faith to believe that. He is not wasting the pen strokes of Scripture. He is preserving this for us, and I think we should look at it. So that's what we're going to do this morning, albeit briefly. Let's take a look at verse 7. It says, To Caicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. 
This guy, Tychicus, is the first one mentioned here, and he shows up in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. So the book of Acts recounts the development of the new church, what God is doing, God's acting in uh, the early church. And we find Tychicus there in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, and he is traveling with Paul on mission. He is mentioned here. He's also mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. Both the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians, probably delivered at the same time uh, by the same messenger. And that messenger we find here is this man, Tychicus, whose job it is to deliver these two letters to these churches. So part of Tychicus' ministry was to deliver letters for Paul, which might not seem like a, a huge, glorious task until you begin to think that these letters that this guy was carrying for months at a time would become part of the backbone of the instruction to the Lord Jesus' church for 2,000 years. Probably did not feel quite as significant as that at the time. It's not like you simply threw these things in a next-day air envelope. This is a journey. This is a trip. This is a trek. And it is the task of a deliveryman to do it. And that is what Tychicus has undertaken. In Titus chapter 3, verse 12, Paul, of course, writing a letter to Titus, whom he has sent uh, to do ministry and to develop churches among the Cretans and other places. Uh, Tychicus is one of two people in Titus chapter 3 that Paul says he is thinking about sending to Titus to take care of the churches that are under Titus's watch while Titus takes a break to go and visit with Paul and be refreshed. So another part of what Tychicus did was that he could fill in for a pastor who needed a break, who needed to take a trip, who needed to do something else for a while. He was what we might call, as Paul said, an interim pastor, an interim preacher, or at least a candidate for that, because Paul says to Titus in his letter, I'm thinking about sending either Tychicus or Artemis to you to give you some time to come and spend with me for instruction, for refreshing, for fellowship, for friendship. I don't know. But he was someone who was capable of doing that. So that tells you he was certainly capable of preaching and teaching and pastoral responsibility and pastoral work. I'm sure Titus is presiding over church congregations bigger than I've ever you know, worked in. You know, a whole area of new churches and congregations and pastors who he's supposed to appoint. Tychicus could do that. That wasn't his main task. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll draw from that chapter for several of these guys, but in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is writing at the very end of his life and ministry. It's his final imprisonment before he finally is uh, convicted of his so-called crimes and executed. And he knows, as people often do, that the end is, is almost here at the end of a long legal struggle. He knows that no one is standing to speak for him, and, and he knows that he faces execution for the gospel. And Paul sends in 2 Timothy chapter 4, it says that he sends Tychicus to Ephesus from Rome, which is a good ending to Tychicus' service for Paul because it means that Tychicus did not abandon Paul of his own volition. He didn't walk away because things were getting terrible and and ugly for Paul. He didn't abandon him. He stayed faithful to the very end until Paul sent him away to service in Ephesus, 
uh, for the sake of the gospel, and that's, that's when he went. We won't say that about all the people at the end of Paul's life, but we get to say that about Tychicus. Uh, there were others, as we will see, who abandoned Paul uh, long before he had any chance to give them any sort of final lasting mission. But the last thing we see from Tychicus in the Bible is that he went to Ephesus on Paul's instructions to go help and support there. They already had pastors, they already had teachers, they already had a church, but Tychicus was going to go help. So was he a great preacher? I don't know. I don't know. Um, It doesn't appear to be how God used him in the main during the course of Paul's ministry. It seems that he was simply a very great, dedicated Christian friend and minister alongside Paul. And I want to emphasize that word, a friend. A friend. A friend who was willing to serve Paul for the sake of gospel ministry. He did what needed to be done. If you needed a delivery boy across the the world, okay, I'll do that. If you need a fill-in pastor for the real pastor someplace, okay, I can do that. If you need a friend and a partner in the dungeon for a while, I can do that. And if you need somebody to go support Ephesus because there's nothing more for me here, okay, I'll leave my friend and my mentor and I'll have the faith to go and do what he says in Ephesus. That's Tychicus. Here in Colossians 4, he's described with a couple of significant words, isn't he? The first word we see is beloved. The second real descriptive word there is faithful. He is a beloved brother. He is a faithful minister. His purpose in verse 8 is to answer their questions about Paul's condition. Uh, no, no doubt they had lots of questions about how Paul was doing. I mean, if, if you heard that the Apostle Paul, who'd started your church, been fundamental in your church, who, he didn't start it, but who'd supported it, was now under arrest, you would want to know the details of what was happening and what the, what the outcome might be. And So he was delivering a message and giving a sort of account of affairs. But he's also going to survey their own circumstances. He, he had the kind of responsible character that he could go into a church with people whom we can presume he was unfamiliar with and assess the situation and survey the circumstances, not in a critical way, but in a way that would provide comfort to them and help to them. That's what it says. By this he would, verse 8 says, comfort their hearts. Let me tell you something. Real Christian ministry, the Christian ministry that has legs, you know, there are lots of Christian men uh, who I don't have a lot of problems. There was a guy, really popular <laughs> Christian pastor, uh, who I don't have a lot of problems with. Uh, I certainly won't give you his name, but he wrote a book uh, a couple years ago, maybe within the last 18 months, very critical of the Christian church today, proposing revolutionary changes to the way the Christian church was operating. And his main thesis for why uh, we should all change and, and do things the way he was doing them was because he was having great success doing them. He'd been doing it for about a year. Uh, here we are two years later, and he has left that way of doing ministry, and he's going overseas to go back into foreign mission work, leaving the new way that he came up with of doing church in our modern world behind. And, you know, i got to say, it didn't seem like his new way had many legs, didn't have much legs. You know, something that you can only do for a few years does not seem like something that you should have the confidence to commend to everybody else at the critical nature of despising what they're doing. Uh, The kind of ministry 
that has legs, that brings a, a lasting honor to God, requires friends, and I use that word deliberately, friends like Tychicus. You know, the idea of friendship in ministry and among the body of Christ is essential to New Testament teaching. Did you know that? Jesus' big graduation announcement to his disciples before he went to the cross is that before they were his servants, his disciples, and now he called them his friends. That was a promotion. You understand that, right? These are disciples who've gone out and they've done miraculous things. They've given big sermons and big places. And their promotion is not to Grand Arch Peter of the Diocese of... No, no, no. The pronouncement of Jesus to their graduation is, before you were this, but now, now I call you my friends. Think about that. Christian ministry requires, requires friends. Tychicus was Paul's friend. We don't see him frustrated with playing the second fiddle to Paul. We don't see him begging for his own congregation to pastor, his own pulpit to preach from. We don't see him bemoaning all the traveling, being grumpy and all this delivery work. He wouldn't have been much of a comfort to the Colossians if he just showed up with a, a bitter spirit, frustrated at his travel and just you know, anxious to get out of there and get back. Oh, yeah, I'll stay the night, then I'm headed back. He's beloved like best friends are beloved because he is faithful and he's a faithful minister. The church needs people like this. You know, I'm happy to say we have a lot of them here. We have a lot of people who are friends and who are happy to be friends and who see great value in being friends. And I hope that you are deliberately being friends to other people. I really do hope that. The church needs people like this. Um, next guy we see, verse 9. Tychicus comes with a familiar character, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. Now, we know who Onesimus is from the book of Philemon. This, this guy has a whole book of the Bible written about him. It's not called Onesimus, it's called Philemon, but it is about him. This is a slave who runs away from Philemon's house. Philemon was a Christian man. Uh, Paul had won him to the Lord, and it just so happens, just so happens, according to the sovereignty of God, that this runaway slave Onesimus finds himself in Rome, a city of approximately two million people, and of all those two million people, he so happens, according to the sovereignty of God, to bump into Paul, who so happens to recognize this man Onesimus from Philemon's house, and Paul wins him to the Lord. And he tells Onesimus, I want you to go with Tychicus. And I want you to go back to your master Philemon with Tychicus. And I want you to give him this letter. And I want you to trust the Lord with what will happen next. A runaway slave could be executed. In fact, that was the legal obligation. If caught, the punishment was death. So it is an act of faith for Onesimus to return now with Tychicus on Paul's instruction, and he too is called faithful and beloved in verse 9. This is a Christian friend to Paul who is not running from his past. He is marching back into his past repentantly for the service of Jesus. Sometimes it is the hardest thing in the world for Christians to acknowledge their past humbly with repentance in front of others. 
That is exactly what Onesimus is being asked to do. He had done wrong. Not only had he run away, but he had robbed Philemon on his way out. And Philemon had no reputation of a bad, tyrant kind of guy. And now he's got to march back into his past by faith, humbly, with repentance. And that's what he does. I don't know how common the name Onesimus was back then, but I'll tell you something interesting. Church history records the death of one guy named Onesimus at the end of the first century, who was the pastor in a city called Ephesus. And the timing is right, and the location is right, and it seems logical that the church would record his passing because he is the same Onesimus mentioned in the Scripture. I think it is possible, in fact, even probable, that this Onesimus went from being Philemon's slave to Philemon's pastor. And that is the sort of transformation that the gospel makes in a person's life among his friends. We, we see three guys in verses 10 and 11. Let's read those now. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions that if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. That's what friends should be to us, right? A comfort to us. That's what friends should be to us. Aristarchus is a man who began traveling with Paul in Acts 19. He is one of two people who get mentioned uh, in the following chapters as those who are caught by that huge mob in Ephesus. Remember when the city revolts and they, they turn against Paul and his work? Ephesus is this big place with the temple of, of Artemis. And, uh, and the, he's one of two people who gets caught. And he gets dragged into the theater by the mob. We don't know exactly what happens to him, whether how, to the extent to which he's mistreated, but he didn't go there on his own volition. I'd imagine that'd be a pretty terrifying thing. One of the most terrifying things in the books of Acts in the book of Acts, to have a huge mob of people take you prisoner. But Aristarchus stays faithful to Paul. He travels with him throughout the later chapters in the book of Acts. And he's with him now in Rome, it says, as a prisoner. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. Was he actually a prisoner in the Roman sense of the idea? Probably not. Paul was the one they had arrested. He was the one that the Jews had uh, sought vengeance against. But Aristarchus was a prisoner then by choice. He suffered the lot that Paul suffered. That's what friends do. That's what friends do, right? What does Jesus say? You know, when was I in prison and you came and visited me? Remember that? That's what friends and brothers do. That's what Aristarchus did. He was Paul's friend. If Paul was in prison, that's where you would find Aristarchus. Can you imagine uh, Roman soldiers guarding Paul? They couldn't have been given charge to guard too many uh, Jewish prisoners who constantly had this circle of people coming in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. You know, why do all these guys keep showing up to visit you, man? I mean, what, what's going on here? And he says, they're my friends. They're my, these are my brothers in the Lord Jesus. That guy who was crucified, Jesus? Yeah, yeah, that guy. He rose from the grave, though. And he appeared to a lot of people afterwards. He appeared, he appeared to me. Don't these people have lives? You know, they, don't they have things to do besides just hang around the house arrest, the dungeon, the Paul, and the... What are they doing here? Well, they've given those lives to the Lord. 
right? Yeah, they've got lives. They've given those lives to the Lord. And the Lord's called them to serve with me. And they say, man, that's some crazy religion. It, it is crazy. It started by a man who laid down his life for his friends and who said there was no love greater than a man who would lay down his life for his friends. And folks, that's what you and us for one and two as well, to love each other by laying down our lives for one another. That is reasonable Christian service. Mark is mentioned in verse 10. Mark is the guy who famously went on one missionary journey with Paul, and evidently halfway through, he had seen enough. Uh, he was done, and he quit. Uh, go on a missionary journey, and I'm out, you know, about halfway through. You just look, I don't know how it happened. I don't know if he made some speech or maybe left a note or just got up one day in the village they were traveling through, and Mark is no longer here. Uh, but he did. He quit. We don't know why, but we know that Paul wasn't very happy about it. He refused on the next missionary trip to take Mark along with him. You know, Paul and Barnabas had a successful missionary trip, and Barnabas says, hey, you know, uh, we took Mark with us last time. Let's take Mark with us this time. And he says, uh, there's not a chance that I'm taking that quitter with me this time. He wasn't any use to us last time. He's not going to be any use to us this time. I need people on uh, uh, who are serious people. We're going to go do a serious thing. We're going to take the gospel into places. We need serious people. This is not some holiday trip. You know, this is not vacation. We need people who are useful. What skill does he bring to the table? He's a young guy who quit on us last time. But Barnabas gives Mark a second chance, costs him his, his uh, joint venture with Paul. Paul goes out with Silas. Barnabas says, you know, I don't, think, I don't think God's done with this guy. Mark, he had a bad, bad first outing, but I think we give him a second chance. And Barnabas goes out with him. Mark proves himself reliable. Somehow in the whole mix, he gets cast in with Peter's lot, ministering with Peter. Mark will go on to record... You know, the Gospel of Mark, which is most likely the account of Peter, which Mark records from serving faithfully with Peter in Peter's local church and local work. Mark gets his second chance, and now Mark is Paul's friend. He will not abandon Paul, which has a stroke of irony to it, doesn't it? Because he did abandon Paul once, didn't he? <laughs> he did! And Paul wasn't too happy about it. And uh, now he will not leave him. At the end of Paul's life, again, writing that letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, you know, he asks Timothy to come see him before he dies. He says, Timothy, if you can, if you can get away, come and see me as, as quickly as you can because I'd, like I'd like to see you before you die. And you know what he says to Timothy? Now, this is what he says. Listen to these words carefully. Take Mark and bring him with you because he is profitable to me for the ministry. And you say, that's kind of a cold thing to say about someone, isn't it? How would you feel if I was like, you know what, uh, take Justin with you. He's profitable. He's useful. How would, how would you feel? Or, oh yeah, Justin, yeah, he's a, he's a useful guy. Does that sound warm and compassionate to you? No, it sounds like we're talking about somebody like they're a commodity, right? I mean, a, a, like an investment, you know, so this person is profitable, this person is useful, but it's not, it's not cold at all. And in fact, I would argue it is probably the sweetest thing that Paul could have said to Mark. 
Because at one point, because of Mark's quitting, Paul had refused to even travel with him. Not because he hated Mark, but because Mark simply wasn't useful. He simply wasn't profitable. He wasn't valuable to him. He didn't offer anything. And sometimes, man, when you really want to do well and you know you haven't done well, the most biting thing you can be told is, I'm sorry, but you just can't help us. You know, I'm sorry, but you're just not profitable here. You know, we don't have any use for you. Hey, isn't that a crushing thing to hear when in your heart you really do want to help? And so I think it's the greatest kind of redemption. And I think deliberate on Paul's part for Mark to read those words, bring Mark, he is valuable. He is useful to me because I know I can depend on that guy. Uh, we're told in verse 11, there's this guy, Jesus, who is called Justice. Got a good idea why they renamed him, right? Uh, that's not an easy uh, name to walk around with in the early church. What's your name, Jesus? That would be difficult, you know, uh, but Justice is not exactly a derogatory term. You know, Justice meant the righteous one. So not, a, not a, an, an awful thing to say about somebody. We don't know much about him, really, except this from verse 11, which Paul writes about all three of these guys. He says, These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They've proved to be a comfort to me. These are Jews, circumcised people, who are truly Jews. These are Jews who are true to the people of God. These are those who have trusted the Messiah who are not behind my arrest. They have embraced my suffering, and these are of my own people, my only faithful friends. That's tough. That's tough. You know, that's a hard thing to be so completely and utterly abandoned by a community of people that you once held such a strong personal identity in that you look up and you say, these are the only three who are still on my side. That's tough. Verse 12 tells us more about a guy named Epaphras. We heard about him in chapter 1. Epaphras was probably the pastor of the church in Colossae. He is the one who had gone from Paul after hearing the gospel in Ephesus and gone to Colossae and planted the church. Now, in the scope of this letter, he had traveled to Paul to get a word from Paul on the false teachers who had infiltrated their Christian community. So the pastor left the church to go to Paul to get a word, an official word from Paul about the false teaching in his area, in his community that he's trying to confront, which I can imagine indicates there were people who wouldn't listen to him, but he thought they'll listen to the Apostle Paul. And so he takes it upon himself to go on this journey and to talk to Paul and to get these instructions sent. Here is verse 12. Paul calls him a servant of Jesus Christ saying that he, quote, always is laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness. Paul is his witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those who are in Heropolis. Here's a pastor who just had the guts to think that it was his job to call out false teaching. Don't get real popular doing that. Not in a lot of circles. Who thought it was his job to make sure that if people would not hear his own words on a subject, if there were any confusion whatsoever, 
that he would go to the apostle himself and that they would listen to something final from him. Why did he do that? For the same reason that he prayed for them. It says it here in the verse. It was essential that they grow to maturity in the will of God. This is a pastor doing what pastors do, challenging people. You know, how many of you, if you were honest, said that it's been uncomfortable from time to time to be challenged from the pulpit? It's not a comfortable thing. It's not comfortable. Not comfortable for me. That is a pastor's job to challenge and to pray so that people don't get complacent, so that people continue to grow towards maturity in the faith, so that people continue to grow towards maturity in the will of God. People don't like to be challenged, and it's tough to change. And let me tell you something, when people get the wrong ideas about something, it is tough to tell them you have the wrong idea about this. And that's what Epaphras was in the middle of. It was tough, but you know, a pastor's got to do what a pastor has got to do. And he did it, man. He went and he got Paul. And he went and he, and he prayed. He prayed so much for these people that Paul knew how much he was praying for these people. He, he, could, he said it was zealous prayer. That's the kind of language used to describe the prayer of Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he sweat great drops of blood, that's the same verbiage used here. He prayed for these people. And the cost of the journey, the time of the journey, what he risked by leaving his church to go on the journey, it was worth it if it was going to mean their safety and security in the Word of God. Paul gives him a good testimony here. Luke is mentioned in verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician. Period. Paul was not, it appears, a man of great health. He had all kinds of struggle on his first missionary journey. His second missionary journey, he does the practical thing. A doctor tags her to... Luke begins traveling with him. Uh, Luke becomes his friend, as people do when they love you and they start to leave whatever vocation they had before in order to travel with you and help you and take care of you. That's a Christian minister, by the way. Luke is not a preacher or a teacher. We don't ever see that. He's not filling in for pastors like Tychicus. He's not being commissioned with delivering you know, books of the Bible, although he will later, but not here. He's, uh, he's serving Paul, and by serving Paul, he's serving Jesus. How's he doing it? I don't know. Anybody know what kind of stuff doctors did? Is he taking blood pressure? Is he listening to heart rates? Is he watching the prisoner diet and imploring the local Christians to maybe contribute something a little more healthy than what the Romans were providing? Is he, is he bandaging up wounds from rocks and stonings? Is he taking care of... Snake bites? Is he dealing with infections and bandaging sores and bruises with bombs and holsters from people that have beaten him with rods, drug him outside a city to die? Luke was a friend. Fruitful Christian ministry requires the support of Christian friends. Christian living requires the support of Christian friends. And folks, if you don't have them, if you don't truly have them, you need to find them in the church. Now, this is why we should ask people out to dinner and over to our house. Not so we can put on some pretend show of close fellowship. That's not what we're looking for. We're building Christian reliance on Christian friends. And you know what? I'm, I am grateful and in fact, I believe I take a sort of holy pride in the fact that in our church, there are people who use their trades to help others all the time. 
people who use their skills to the glory of God at no charge for the ministry and for the help of other believers all the time. That's what Luke did. He hadn't left Paul on, uh, on some sort of vocational mission. He was with him, even in prison. Verse 14 ends with a man named Demas. Now, Demas in this chapter is not called faithful or beloved. He isn't given a job or a, or a duty, no responsibility. I don't know why. I do know that Demas is one of those friends that doesn't last. He doesn't last. At the end of 2 Timothy in chapter 4, at Paul's darkest earthly moment when he knows he is going to die, in verse 10 of the chapter, Paul says this about Demas. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed to Thessalonica. He didn't leave Paul on a mission. He didn't leave to go work in another church. Paul wouldn't have said it like that if he had left on good terms. This is a person who had pronounced an allegiance to Christ and in the darkest moment decided, no way, I'm out of here. I don't want to live this life anymore. He had wanted his worldly life back or some semblance of it without all the obligations of Christian community. And make no mistake about it, Christian community has obligations. It does. Only true friends with a real love for Jesus, a true love for His people, will have the faithfulness to do well in Christian community to the very end of their lives. I say that again. Only true Christians with a true love for God's people a love from the Spirit of God, will be faithful to serve God in Christian community to the very end. Uh, whatever Christian community was to Demas, it sounded good, and eventually he was who he was. He wasn't a brother. He wasn't a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He left. Now, God calls people to different places at different times. Paul knew this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we see Paul had sent many people off we know this too. We've said goodbye to people who've gone on to serve in other ways and other places. As much as we may love and serve one another, nothing on the earth is permanent. We know that. But when we go, we should part as brothers and sisters. We should part with love and affection and communication and blessing, prayer, peace. Not to Christian people who love you. It comes with the severing of Christian fellowship. Do not be a Demas to Christian people who love you. Don't be that person. Final instructions now as we read verses 15 through 18. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus in the church that is in his house. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. They were to exchange these instructions so everybody would get the benefit. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Quite a challenge to that guy, whoever he was. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you, amen. Remember my chains. You know, on the front of this little table here, under the tablecloth are the words, this do in remembrance of me. You know... It's fitting to preach a sermon like this on a Sunday when we observe the Lord's Supper. Like baptism, the Lord's Supper is not a private affair. It is not something that we do quietly in our dining rooms or in your study or in your closet. This is a family affair to be observed by the family of God as we remember the suffering of our Lord 
who has given his life for us. And you know, we're supposed to do it as Christian community. The church is criticized by Paul when they started observing the Lord's Supper, not in true Christian fellowship, not in the fellowship of friends, but one person getting priority over another. The church is criticized by Paul for that. This is something that Christian fellowship is to take seriously and do to remember what Jesus has done. So as we prepare to take it together, let's pray. Father, I pray that you'll give us all a sense of commitment to Christian friendship. Not simply for our own benefit, but for the benefit of what you do among us in the ministry here. No man or woman is an island. You could have orchestrated a plan of salvation that called us into a religious experience that was private and individual and and to be observed quietly without community. You certainly could have done that, but you did not. The very creation of man and woman is a sign of the community that you wish to have with them and among them. The multitude of angels is a sign of the community and fellowship that you enjoy with them. Father, us now, forgiven, redeemed, are meant to enjoy and take advantage of this fellowship now, this friendship now, because it is a reflection, albeit poorly sometimes, of what heaven will be, a people living together. Thank you for my friends here. Father, thank you for the great cost that you paid to give me friends. Surely, by the spilling of your blood, you've done this. By your stripes, we're healed. As we remember that now, help us to be filled with gratitude and seriousness. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.